Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, September 15th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshur with today's headlines. The U.S. plans to withhold military aid to Egypt. Canada's Trudeau faces slumping polls. Ukraine launches another attack on Crimea. The U.N. finds 13 mass graves in Sudan's Darfur. A U.S. judge rules against DACA. Trump's Georgia election trial is separated from two co-defendants. The EU launches a Chinese EV subsidy probe. India's Kerala faces a deadly Nipah virus outbreak. U.S. inflation accelerates. And a stranded cruise ship is free. The U.S. will withhold $85 million in military aid to Egypt over political prisoners. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Middle East Eye, and the New Arab. According to a congressional notification obtained by U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, the U.S. plans to withhold $85 million in military aid to Egypt due to its failure to meet U.S. conditions on freeing political prisoners. The U.S. Department of State letters set out that the funds will instead go to Taiwan and Lebanon, which will respectively receive $55 million and $30 million. Senator Murphy welcomed the move from the Biden administration, but called on the government to withhold the full $320 million until Egypt's human rights and democracy record improves. Largely as a result of the 1979 Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty, the U.S. has given Egypt roughly $1.3 billion a year to buy U.S. weapons systems and services. However, in the last two years, the U.S. withheld $130 million each year over similar concerns. Critics argued that unless more money is withheld compared to previous years, the Egyptian government will get the sense that its human rights record has improved. Seth Binder from the Project on Middle East Democracy told Reuters this is just not true. According to a 2022 New York Times report, Egypt had some 60,000 political prisoners at the time, though several thousand were reportedly released after President Biden met with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi that July. However, recent reports suggest that a crackdown on speech is continuing and that new arrests outnumber releases from prison. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. And our first narrative spin comes from Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut's official website. Egypt under Sisi continues its crackdown on free speech and dissent, jailing thousands more people compared to the number of those released. If Cairo wants to continue receiving U.S. tax dollars, it must represent American values of democracy and free speech. This authoritarian regime has received hundreds of millions of dollars despite its crimes, and U.S. law requires the White House to stop rewarding this behavior. And Narrative B is from Responsible Statecraft. It's not clear that withholding money from Egypt has had any noticeable effect on its human rights record. And while this money is going to Egypt, most of it benefits U.S. national security, such as fighting against terrorism in the vital shipping lanes of the Suez Canal. A better approach would be to maintain high levels of diplomacy. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 4% chance of a conflict between Egypt and Israel that will cause more than 1,000 deaths before the year 2030. Scott, where do you stand on withholding things as a parenting tactic? 
I mean, it's tough because you need to deliver on your threats. Uh, So if you start saying you're going to do something, then you have to do it or else that's it. Then the good news is if you deliver on a couple of your threats, then you can just start making threats and people start listening to you. So there's Mm. that. It's um, a delicate balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, but, but what I guess the moral of the story is threats are an very important part of parenting. Canada's Trudeau dismisses the idea of resigning amid slumping polls. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, CTV, MSN, and the Toronto Star. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has maintained that he would continue doing his job when asked if he would consider stepping down due to low approval ratings. Speaking at a press conference on Wednesday, Trudeau claimed that there was a lot of important work to do while reaffirming that he would deliver for Canadians in these difficult moments. The news comes as Trudeau met with party members to discuss strategy as Liberal Caucus Chair Brenda Shanahan stated that the party is having very frank conversations about issues like housing and the rising cost of living. Trudeau admitted that the current cost of living crisis was causing enormous difficulties as he acknowledged grumbling across the country. The current coalition agreement between Trudeau's Liberal Party and the New Democrats is non-binding and could collapse before the next election due in 2025. During Trudeau's time at the latest G20 summit in New Delhi, India, both hashtag Trudeau national disgrace and hashtag Trudeau resign trended on X, formerly known as Twitter. A survey by Abacus Data taken between September 8 and 12 found that out of 2,125 adults, 26% are in favor of Trudeau's Liberal Party, while 41% say they would vote for Canada's Conservative Party. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And we'll begin this round of narratives with the right narrative from the National Post. As Trudeau and his party continue to collapse in the polls, an air of desperation can be felt within Canada's ruling elite. Despite their best attempts, the Liberal Party's effort to regain public trust have fallen flat. The Conservatives are their heir to the country's governance, and Canadians are looking forward to making their voices heard in the next elections. And the star brings us the left narrative spin. Despite recent success, it's unlikely that Polyevra will become Canada's next prime minister, and there's still time for Trudeau to show the nation once again that he's the right man for the job. In a world where political opinion can flip in an instant, A single stumble could see the Conservative Party fall out of the limelight, and there is no guarantee that right-wing policies will appease the entire country's temperament. And occasionally we'll have a nerd narrative on this program, and this is from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 52% chance that the Liberal Party will win the most seats in the next Canadian federal election. Liberal Caucus Chair Brenda Shanahan. There was a, a famous... Canadian hockey player named Brendan Shanahan. I wonder if there's a relation. He was uh, mm. one of the last Hartford Whalers uh, oh, from Connecticut. Maybe, uh, the niece of of Brendan is of, Brenda of, of Hartford of Hartford Whaler great Brendan Shanahan. Maybe, yeah. Russian air defense is destroyed in a further attack on Crimea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukrainska Pravda and TASS. In the second major attack on Crimea in two days, Ukraine on Thursday claimed to have destroyed a Russian air defense system on the peninsula, which was annexed by Russia in 2014. 
According to a source in the Security Service of Ukraine, or the SSU, speaking to Ukrainska Pravda, Kyiv used two Neptune missiles in the attack and targeted Russia's S-300-400 Triumph system in the western Crimean city of Yevpatoria. A Russian Defense Ministry statement on the attack did not mention missiles or acknowledge any damage. It instead stated that 11 drones were shot down over Crimea. The Defense Ministry further said that an additional attack on Russia's Black Sea Fleet was attempted by five unmanned motorboats, stating that all five were intercepted and destroyed. In an attack on the Black Sea Fleet the previous day, which struck a shipyard in Sevastopol, a number of sources suggest that a Russian landing ship and a submarine were destroyed. Pravda brings us the pro-Ukraine narrative. A Russian missile defense system was destroyed in a significant and successful Ukrainian attack on Yevpatoria on Thursday. Evidently, despite propagandist Kremlin claims to the contrary, the peninsula is vulnerable to attack and is less secure than Moscow would have its supporters believe. And TASS brings us the pro-Russia narrative. Russian air defenses shot down 11 drones on Thursday's attack on Crimea, and there were no reports of damage resulting from the incident. Kyiv's claims of success come from a place of desperation, as their prospects of military victory continue to dwindle in the face of Russian forces. And Metaculus has another prediction for us in this nerd narrative. They say there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, that's Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before the year 2024. The UN reports at least 13 mass graves in Sudan's Darfur. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, Arab News, the East African, Al-Arabia, Reuters, and Alsan. The UN Joint Human Rights Office has received credible reports that at least 13 mass graves exist around the West Darfur city of El Janina, claims Sudan's UN envoy Volker Perthes as he announced his resignation on Wednesday. In his final speech to the UN Security Council, Perthes alleged that the mass graves contained victims of attacks by the paramilitary RSF and allied Arab militias on civilians and, if verified, may constitute war crimes. Violence in El Janina, located close to Sudan's border with Chad, has escalated since the conflict between the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese army erupted in mid-April. On Wednesday, at least 40 civilians were reportedly killed in an airstrike that hit two markets and several neighborhoods in Nyala, South Darfur's capital and the country's second largest city. This comes after the U.N. Refugee Agency projected that over 1.8 million people from Sudan will flee to five neighboring countries by the end of the year due to intercommunal violence. Since mid-April, the conflict between two military formations has reportedly killed at least 7,500 people, displaced 5 million, and left more than 20 million suffering from food insecurity. Those were the facts, and we'll start with a narrative A from Aram. The atrocities in Darfur show that the conflict between the Sudanese military and the RSF is on the verge of full escalation. While neither side appears close to a decisive military victory, the conflict could now escalate into a full-blown civil war. Both sides are guilty of crimes against civilians and must be held accountable. And Narrative B comes from the Washington Post. Twenty years after Darfur dominated the headlines, the RSF is perpetrating systematic genocide and exploiting the chaos to continue the ethnic cleansing of Darfur from the African tribes. 
the international community must exhaust all means to end the atrocities. And there's another nerd narrative, this time saying there's a 50% chance that at least 10,000 people will die in the Sudan conflict in 2023. Talk about a mic drop. Uh, It's my last day of work. Also, there's a bunch of mass graves. Bye. I'm out. A federal judge rules against DACA. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Reuters, the Associated Press, CNN, and Fox News. Federal Judge Andrew Hainan on Wednesday ruled that a policy protecting undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children violates federal law. The policy in question, called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, has 579,000 enrollees, in addition to other immigrants who are seeking deportation relief and work permits. Hainan sided with Texas and eight other states who have sued to stop DACA, which Hainan ruled was an attempt by the Biden administration to usurp congressional lawmaking powers since Congress hasn't acted on this matter. Last year, the Biden administration released a rule to codify the Obama-era policy into a federal regulation, but Hainan ruled this was insufficient. Previously, Hainan vacated the DACA program in 2021, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed his ruling, which he has now reaffirmed. The ruling doesn't require the government to take action against current DACA recipients, but the government is forbidden from approving new applications. MSNBC brings us the Democratic narrative. In addition to being a terrible ruling that puts hundreds of thousands of immigrants in danger, This decision is further proof of how Republicans have corrupted the federal judiciary, as they have populated the courts with judges who share their anti-immigrant sentiments, in addition to other conservative viewpoints, a move that prevents fair legislation. Here's the Republican narrative from Town Hall. The DACA program's gross overreach has again been struck down by the courts. Biden decided to alter the Obama-era program rather than put forth sufficient legislation for Congress to consider and expected to get a different answer from the court. But under the separation of powers set forth in the Constitution, DACA is still illegal. A judge separates two Trump co-defendants' trials. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, The Independent, PBS NewsHour, The Associated Press, and Al Jazeera. On Thursday, Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee separated the trials of Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesborough from former U.S. President Donald Trump and 16 other co-defendants in the Georgia election probe. Powell and Chesborough, both lawyers in their own right, had requested speedy trials and were subsequently set a trial date of October 23rd, while Trump and other defendants said they couldn't prepare in time for that deadline. While Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis had wanted all 19 defendants to be trialed together, McAfee allowed the trials to be separated, citing the necessity to ensure adequate pretrial preparation. Federal prosecutors had argued that the separation of the case would lead to an enormous strain on the judicial resources of the court. However, McAfee also noted that Fulton County Courthouse lacked a courtroom adequately large enough to hold 19 defendants and their teams. McAfee did, however, deny Powell and Chesborough's petition to separate their own cases from each other. The 19 individuals are charged within a 41-count criminal indictment accusing the defendants of attempting to overturn President Joe Biden's victory in the state during the 2020 presidential election in favor of Trump. Well, as you may have guessed, we have a pro-Trump narrative on this, and this is from the Western Journal. 
Fonnie Willis' hero status bestowed upon her by the left has been taken down a notch following the court's decision. By allowing Trump's legal team further time to defend the former president's name, there is greater hope that the entirety of the unjust judicial witch hunt by the Biden administration will be shown for the conspiracy that it really is. And we have an anti-Trump narrative from CNN. While the decision is a small win for Trump, it means the former president's legal calendar for the first half of 2024 will be clogged in tandem with handling his run for the presidency. Until a date for Trump's trial is revealed, it seems that every inch will continue to be fought between prosecution and defense. And there's another nerd narrative, this one saying there's a 50% chance that Donald Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The EU launches a China EV subsidy probe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and Reuters. On Wednesday, the EU announced an investigation into Chinese subsidies for electric vehicles sold in Europe, alleging that global markets are now flooded with cheaper electric cars and their prices are kept artificially low by huge state subsidies. According to the China Passenger Car Association, around 350,000 Chinese EVs were exported Around 350,000 Chinese EVs were exported to nine European nations in the first six months of 2023, with this number having quadrupled in the last five years. At this rate, investment firm UBS predicts that China's global share of EVs will nearly double from 17% to 33% by 2030. The European Commission's investigation, expected to take around one year to conclude, could result in tariffs on EV imports from China if the bloc assesses that Beijing's EV subsidies impose on Europe's auto industry. The EU's chief trade official, Valdis Dombrovskis, is scheduled to visit Beijing next week to discuss foreign commerce and the economy. His visit will give China an opportunity to present its case over the probe. Meanwhile, Beijing responded on Thursday, claiming that the EU's decision is a protectionist act aimed at distorting the supply chain and warning that it would damage economic and trade relations. Euractiv brings us the anti-China narrative. The EU cannot stand by while China floods global markets with artificially cheap electric vehicles. Chinese EV manufacturers undercut European companies not because they're better at it, but because their government overflows the market with cash. Furthermore, this is only an investigation, so China should save its complaints until a report is issued. The Global Times brings us a pro-China narrative. If the EU were to examine the development of China's electric vehicle industry objectively, it would find that Chinese EVs generally retail for nearly twice as much in Europe as they do in China, not because of state subsidies, but because of the highly competitive industrial supply chain resulting from strong market competition. The EU's accusations have nothing to do with reality. They're only about protectionism. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they say there's a 50% chance that at least 88.42% of new car sales in China will be electric by the year 2035. The Indian state rushes to contain a Nipah virus. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, NDTV, Reuters, Al Jazeera, CNN, and The Telegraph. Indian authorities in the southern state of Kerala are taking several measures to contain a recent outbreak of the Nipah virus. 
which has killed two people in the state's Kozakode district. Kerala has tested around 800 people over the last few days, with two adults and one child testing positive. At least eight villages have been declared as contaminant zones, in which public schools, government buildings, and places of worship are temporarily shut down. Nipah virus, or NIV, is a zoonotic virus that is transmitted from animals like bats and pigs to humans, or through contaminated food or direct human-to-human transmission. Fruit bats of the Pteropodidae family are believed to be the Nipah virus's natural reservoir. The virus was first identified in 1998 after an outbreak among pig farmers in Malaysia and Singapore, and it remains somewhat of a mystery as it has no vaccine or cure. The disease has a mortality rate of around 70% and has killed hundreds of people since its discovery. The virus has a variety of symptoms that can range from acute respiratory infection to encephalitis, or brain swelling, which can lead to coma within 24 to 48 hours. Some infections can also be asymptomatic. The recent outbreak is the fourth in Kerala since 2018, with the state's health minister, Veena George, saying that the state is focusing on tracking infected people and isolating them. As of Wednesday, 77 people had been deemed high risk and asked to stay home and monitor their symptoms. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with Narrative A from the Deccan Herald. All of southern India, not just the Kozakode district, must be on alert as the Nipah virus re-emerged for the fourth time in five years. This virus is extremely deadly and has claimed the lives of far too many people. India's growing population and increased density make the spread of viruses an even greater threat. And the outbreak of Nipah is a major cause for concern. And the Deccan Chronicle brings us Narrative B. While the return of the Nipah virus is certainly not a welcome development, India is far more prepared to deal with an outbreak than in the past. The COVID pandemic allowed many regions to develop an infrastructure and cooperative system to fight infectious diseases and provide care to patients. Indian citizens shouldn't be too concerned about this flare-up and trust that improved health care will keep everyone safe. And here's Narrative C from The Atlantic. From deforestation to climate change to global meat industry, humans have created conditions where a zoonotic spillover of these types of viruses will become all too frequent. This is another example that we are living in a pandemicin era of our own making. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 45% chance that at least 10 countries will ratify a new international treaty on pandemic prevention and preparedness before the year 2025. U.S. inflation accelerates for a second straight month. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, CNN, CNBC, Reuters, and ABC News. U.S. inflation rose 3.7 percent in August compared to last year, accelerating for the second consecutive month. In July, year-over-year inflation rose 3.2 percent, while monthly inflation was up 0.2 percent compared to 0.6 percent in August. The Department of Labor's Consumer Price Index, or CPI, which measures the cost of various goods and services, on Wednesday showed rising energy and gasoline prices, which were the main contributors to the rise in inflation. Although inflation has risen because of a 5.6% rise in energy prices and a 10.6% increase in gasoline, core inflation, a key figure that excludes volatile food and energy prices, rose 4.3% from a year ago and 0.3% since July. 
These numbers come after the Federal Reserve hiked interest rates to 5% in an attempt to cool the economy. At least one more rate increase could potentially occur in the coming months based on the new data. Federal Chair Jerome Powell has said the economy still has a long way to go in its efforts to get inflation to 2%. And we have an establishment critical narrative from Zero Hedge. The economy is not working for the working class American consumer and the Fed's interest rate hikes, which slow wage growth and make mortgage rates explode, haven't done enough to slow inflation. Hardworking Americans and small businesses are being hit hardest and can't see a way out under current policy. The pro-establishment narrative is coming from KATU Portland. This report is overall positive news for the economy, even if the inflation was a little higher than hoped. Core inflation is slowing and the economy is trending up, so the Fed's policy is working as intended. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they say there's a 40% chance that the U.S. will enter a recession before the year 2025. People kept saying, Scott, the recession is coming, it's coming, it's coming. It's just a matter of time. And wait for it. Well, still nothing. (laughs) I feel like uh, a recession will come when everyone's sure that it won't come. You know, I, I I I think it's one of those things... Well, that's when something could happen. When everyone's sure, Mm. you know, like there's not going to be another bank crisis in the way there was in 2008 until everyone who was around then forgets and they start doing the same stupid stuff. There's too much readiness. The same, you know, same, you know, there's not going to be another Great Depression right after because all those people were, you know, saving their monies. Left time goes by. People start doing whatever. People start getting greedy. People start getting sloppy. Then you get a recession. So as soon as we all stop looking, you know, uh, then there'll be one. So keep looking. Right. Don't let your guard down, America. Yeah. A cruise ship stranded after running aground in Greenland is freed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and The New York Post. Three days after it ran aground in Alpafjord, a remote part of Northeast Greenland National Park, A cruise ship carrying 206 passengers and crew was pulled free on Thursday. The ship's owner stated that it was freed based on a pull from a fisheries vessel as well as the ship's own power. The $33,000 per passenger ship, which is called the Ocean Explorer and is operated by Australian cruise company Aurora Expeditions, began its three-week voyage to Greenland on September 1st and was scheduled to return on September 22nd. However, the luxury vessel became stuck in mud and silt, roughly 1,400 kilometers or 870 miles from Denmark's capital, Nook. Before being freed, it received one failed rescue attempt from a fishing trawler and an inspection by the Danish military's Joint Arctic Command. Greenland's picturesque coast is a popular destination for cruise ships, including the 104-meter or 341-foot Ocean Explorer which the Sunstone Group website reports has 77 cabins and several restaurants on board. Though it's been confirmed that two passengers on the ship have contracted COVID, according to Aurora Expeditions, both of them have been isolated and are doing well. Passengers are believed to be from Australia, New Zealand, Britain, the U.S., and South Korea, among other nations. All right, thank you, Scott. And here are the spins, beginning with a narrative A from the Financial Times. This incident underscores the effect that increasingly popular Arctic tourism risks posing to the environment. 
While companies profiteer from the willingness of the most privileged to pay significant sums to experience the Arctic in luxury, the question must be asked whether these sorts of excursions are really justifiable. And narrative B comes from the Washington Post. Ocean Explorer has been clear that the ship poses no threat to the environment and that passengers have been receiving all medical treatment necessary. However, given that the Ocean Explorer is presented by its company's website as being designed to handle remote destinations, it must be investigated why this occurred in the first place. How long do you think you'd have to be stranded on a cruise ship before the workers stop working and the passengers stop passaging and things get weird? What does that mean? Okay, for instance, so like let's say you're the crepe chef on this boat. Yeah. Okay. If you're going to be stuck on this thing for like 10 years, you're not just going to keep cooking crepes. You're going to be like, dude, I'm not cooking the crepes anymore. I'm just <laughs> I'm just going to chill out like everybody else. Like why should you get We didn't I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. So we can agree that after 10 years, the, the social order would break down and different stuff would happen. For right? sure. For sure. So how long would it be before if like if after like an extra week, are you still cooking the crepes? I don't know. Would you just stop? What, what okay. would, how would it, how would this work? There's a piece of information that I think is important. Maybe Go a little on. judgy, but that's, you know, that's me. Uh, <laughs> this is a luxury cruise. It costs $33,000 to get on. Yep. Yep. I don't think it's going to take very long for the staff to get irritated. Yeah. With the passengers. I mean, I However, think the f- they're probably also really used to fine dining and and all that, so uh, I don't know. Maybe I should give them more credit. I'm going to save my penny so right before some sort of apocalyptic event I can get a first class ticket somewhere and then I'll just stay with that group. You know, that's what I'm going to wait yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, plan accordingly. I think is the lesson, right? Yes. Plan for the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. If you, you don't want to be in steerage in the that. apocalypse. You want to be yeah, up front. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. If the Titanic has taught us anything. Yep. Or you could be one of the violin players. Yeah. Yeah. You could I mean, make I, a different choice. Well, right. Well, that's the, right. Yeah. We boat. are going to play no matter what. Like, yeah, that they, they did not violate the social order. They were here to right. play and they played. And that's it. I mean, I guess performers are just so, so desperate for a crowd <laughs> to anyone to listen. If it was you and me and we're the improv troupe that's on there, would we have kept yes ending all the, all the ways the boat goes down? Scott, I don't think we would be able to stop. Yeah. Let's zip zap, push a kid over to get a zip zap, get on a rescue boat. That's the plan. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, September 15th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To learn more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshirt, inviting you to join us next time on Verity.